Monday, the 4th of May, and welcome to Rational Radio, the webinar edition. A pretty good turnout for our Rational Radio, as uh, always, but uh, especially so this week. And of course, in studio, we have our two esteemed guests, David Shapiro and Gigi Alcock. We will later be joined in the program by Michael Jordan and Magda Wierzikcha. Uh, but let's just kick off with our first two. David, uh, I have made a little slide for you. You were naughty. You didn't send me the bio that you had to, so you have to live up <laughs> live with this slide. I love that picture of you. Do you wear it uh, pretty much all the time? The mask, that is. No, not at all. I, I had to do that for a webcast. Uh, somebody wanted to see us in a mask. And you'll see that my hair is a lot shorter than it was there as well. Uh, a lot more grey in that picture. I look much older than I really am. So uh, I'm not proud of that picture. <laughs> but it's quite, a, it's quite a nifty mask. Ours are uh, pretty much homemade versions. Where did that one come from? Uh, my wife went out. She's a specialist in these kind of things and uh, look for one that we have to continually spray and keep and the whole family have got them. So that you can't run in those. No, you, you dare not go out because if you go running in one of those, you suffocate within the first 100 meters. You're dead. You just <laughs> fall over. So um, those are only when you go shopping at Discam or something like that. So. Well, I, I did see, David, uh, we went out yesterday. Unfortunately, today uh, I had lots of things on my plate, but we went out for our exercise between six and nine yesterday, and I was ex- amazed at how many people uh, in our area, which is uh, in the fairly upmarket area, were out there walking around, mostly with masks, excepting the runners. So I can see what you're talking about. If you're a runner, it really isn't the time to be wearing masks, I guess. No, and that's why no one greets you. You know, you can recognize all the dog walkers and everybody else behind their masks, and you walk past them and say, hello, John, or something like that, and they kind of grunt at you as though you're an outcast you know, for running and uh, not wearing masks, so whatever. <laughs> but, uh, it, Alex, the number of people that were out over the weekend is just quite astonishing. And, uh, you know, everybody coming out and uh, just airing themselves, walking their children, just walking, uh, you know, you can see what lockup has done to them. They just need some fresh air. And, and the weather was magnificent. I mean, even today, it's really beautiful. Such a beautiful half-felt, uh, you know, um, autumn. We're very privileged yeah, to live. At this, in this part of the world, certainly weather-wise. Gigi Alcock, you're on screen now. Uh, Gigi, you, you've really plugged into the informal economy, carcinomics, etc., your, your, um, uh, your gift to the world, unpacking lots of things that many other people don't see. But that means you're well-connected there as well. What's the feedback like coming from the CASI? Hi, Alec. Yeah, so um, I think that in fact, going around, I live in Kailami, and going around Kailami, it felt like I was in Soweto. You know, everyone was walking in the streets and the kids were playing in the streets and so on. So, um, But, yeah, the, um, the fast food outlets were allowed to open with deliveries only on Friday, and uh, which I think was a really good thing, and there's a huge number of these outlets have opened. Uh, it's a mute point to say, are they doing deliveries or just allowing takeaways? Um, I'll, I'll leave that there. Uh, but I think there's a 
quite a frustration um, really around, and I said this right at the beginning, around people wanting to get back to work around the issues of um, people needing to work. Uh, and uh, so I think that there's going to be increasing ignoring of regulations. Uh, this is um, month end with social grants and stuff paid, so the stores and the spices and stuff have been quite busy. Uh, but uh, I, I sense a very strong, uh, from all my network, um, frustration at the moment, people wanting to get back to work. Mm. Yeah, it is. Uh, there's lots of debate. I got an email from somebody today who said that there are something like 500,000 people saying end the lockdown, whereas 5,000 people say keep it going. That's, that's something that we'll be talking about, no doubt, as we go through the program. But let's start off with the markets generally, David. Uh, I'll bring up in a minute how they are performing at the moment. But how, how are you reading things this Monday morning? I, look, we're in a difficult period now. Um, but difficult is that uh, no one can see ahead. No one really knows where we're heading. We're in that murky period um, the news that's coming out on the medical side is improving, as we saw from Gilead last week, uh, also on the vaccine side. Um, there tends to be a belief that by the, with so much money being thrown at the problem that by the end of the year there will be a vaccine. So I think on that side you're starting to get uh, better news. On the economic side, the numbers that are coming out are very distressing. So I'm talking more in a global context now, but I think it's going to be only by the year end that we'll start to see um, better numbers coming through. And there's still a lot of concern about where global economies will be, you know, in the next three months, corporate earnings and so on. So it's a difficult, it's a difficult period. And uh, we're also going to have to count the costs. So you can understand why those 500,000 people want uh, to come back to work. You know, they're, they're frustrated. They're, um, they're not earning. They see, we're seeing a lot of small and medium-sized businesses just closing up. Hairdressers, spas, I'm talking SBAs, you know, uh, not the spas or, or spa shops and so on. So I think globally it's, it, it, it's a big issue. So I think you've got to be patient. You know, if you're going to stay in the market over the next, um, if you want to stay in the market, just be patient over the next month. It's going to be a very, very difficult time uh, to negotiate. Um, Alec, the one thing I must say is that the market is actually short. What I mean by that is money managers are accumulating huge amounts of cash. Uh, the traders, those who want to be short, are short. So that tends to give some kind of um, underpin to the market. So, you know, we're not likely to see any major, major shifts down, downward, but I think the upside shift is going to take a little longer. You know, it's going to take some time. Be mm. patient. That's it. I'm just looking at the screen right now, David, and the bigger movers on today. Obviously, the penny stocks are dominating there, but as you go down the list, you see Sassel, that's down 11%. EOH, wow, 335, down another 11%. Um, uh, Tex Tainer, I think that's yeah. the the the, um, the Giles, isn't it? No, no. Mm. no. Uh, and then you got Soho Sun, which somehow picked up nine and a half percent. But this kind of volatility is something we need to get used to, I presume. It, it's crazy. You know, I've never in my life seen moves like this, uh, 10% moves in a day, either up or down. Um, liquidity is very low as well, meaning 
there's not much of a market out there. The only markets that we're seeing in a big way are in the top end of the market, which we in Aspers, Process, uh, every day the gold shares, some of the miners, you know, those tend to dominate trade. Trade's been okay. It's been in the region of about uh, 20 to 23 billion a day. It's, it's light. But it's better than we've seen at the beginning of the year. So there's a lot of trade taking place, but it's not in those low liquidity stocks, uh, you know, not in the smaller numbers as well. So that's why we've seen the kind of volatility that, uh, you, you know, you're identifying now on the screen. But even there, now I've pulled up the uh, most value traded. And as you can see there, the top 20 are all down today. So it hasn't been a good day at all so far, uh, with some really big hits being taken on some of the stocks, as we can see the 8% for ABSA, 8.5% for ABSA, Richmond 3%, Nedbank 6.5%. These are really big moves, David. If you're an investor, presumably, and Capitec 5%, you just sit on the sidelines. That's hmm. catch up on Friday. Remember, we were closed. And Friday was a bad day for markets. It was the 1st of May. Uh, so there was a ro- lot of rebalancing in, in, in global markets. There's still a move out of, out of equities into cash. But I think, um, you know, on Friday, U.S. markets were down 3%. So, um, also this morning, we're just playing catch up with where Markets are going to go. There's further downward pressure on, on global markets. Uh, Cecil, the oil price not looking good again, uh, taking some big hits, and uh, they're coming under a bit of pressure. There was actually quite a good, I must say, Abdul David wrote something in Business Day this morning or was interviewed in Business Day. Gives you a good insight into into Cecil. Worth reading, if I can recommend. Um, just Just talking about... Uh, the sale of the Lake Charles or the proposed sale of the Lake Charles um, project and how they, you know, he, he's broken it up into two areas where it's probably going to be the plastic side, not the, uh, not the, not the specialized chemicals that they'll sell. But also they're saying that there are people who want to come in. So worth, worth a read this morning. You know, first decent insight I've seen into Sassel. Excellent. And just to remind you that this is an interactive program, we've uh, got the background from David, we'll get background in just a moment from Gigi as well, and as you can see on the screen, Michael Jordan is going to be with us in a few minutes too, Uh, but if you would like to participate, there is a little box down the end which says questions, just click on that and write in or text in, uh, sorry, write in your questions, and uh, if you... Uh, do I'll have a look at them. I can see there's one from Paul. I can see there's one from Peter. One from Peter, one from Paul. Um, and uh, put your questions in there and we will pose them to our uh, panelists uh, as we go along in the program. Gigi, from your perspective, is there any upliftment uh, within the informal sector? So I think, um, look, if, if you, let's look at various categories. Um, if you look at what we've seen with the Spaza sector, and I believe the same has been seen in the formal retail sector, is a growth of basics um, and, and, in fact, an increase in sales um, of things like flour, maize meal, and those kind of things, and a drop-off on categories like um, household products and, and those kind of elements. So... Uh, you know, it really is a thing of households focusing on food items um, in terms of purchases. Uh, so, you know, if I was, I guess, uh, any of the, uh, the the guys manufacturing uh, 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 
maize meal flour, etc. I think you're in a very strong position and will continue to do so. In fact, we, the spaza sector are complaining about shortages of things like cooking oil, flour, uh, maize meal, and, and similar kind of products. So, but um, I think generally, because you know, we've in essence, if we look at the informal sector, the only outlets that are open or, or sectors that are open are the uh, spaza sectors open, the fruit and vegetable hawkers, and very limited opening of the fast food sector. The vast proportion of everything else, the Garcia mechanics and auto sector, um, and and anything outside of fruit and veg and foodstuffs is is closed down. So I think that. And this is where, in a sense, you know, I think we really have this big need for how, uh, for people to, to go back to work. I think I also need to point out that a very large proportion of our population um, is um, in, in that sector is, is immigrants, is foreigners, if you want to call them that. And um, we've seen these 10-kilometer queues for people queuing up for foodstuffs. Um, I believe a large proportion of those are are not South African, um, and they don't benefit from social grants, they don't benefit from all sorts of interventions. And I think there's a very big danger of this. You know, We can't just ignore it and assume whether they're legal or not, what are we going to do about it? And I, I think that we're going to see a large number of the immigrant guys going back to work or, or reverting to crime and, and so on. So I really think we need to look at a solution for, for low-income categories that goes beyond just saying you have to be 100% South African or um, and, and, and I, I believe that the opportunity, we can't also create a welfare state so how do we find ways to allow um, these small businesses as one person businesses to start entering the economy on a, on a slow basis uh, I also think that we've seen in essence March I uh, said in our first back in, in the beginning of March that the real impact is going to be felt in May. Uh, and I really see that. I think that uh, people received salaries and were working in, in uh, uh, February and beginning of March to an extent. And um, I think that May is going to be a tough month. Paul Hansen wants to know, anyone heard about any news about whether the global government bond index has sold its South African bonds yet, David? Um. I'm trying to find that out this morning. There's been no evidence in the pricing. Um, what was interesting, though, is that the RAND, which Thursday morning was 1803, um, spiked on Friday around about 1880, 1890 is where we took off this morning. We've settled down slightly at 1875, which does suggest a little bit of withdrawal. But, Alec, I, came, I, I, sat, through an, I sat through a presentation this morning and I don't think that that is confined to South Africa. I think it's a general trend that we have seen uh, in markets where there has been rebalancing of pension and you know, pension funds and other um, investment vehicles where there's been still a sell-off, a uh, huge sell-off in equities, you know, going into uh, going into bonds or going into cash. So I think. If there has been a sell-off, um, you know, it's probably in line with what we're seeing in the rest of in, in, in the rest of the market. But there's, there hasn't been a, a major evidence of, uh, of of offloading of bonds. I think it might have been and it might have taken place uh, before. And just on the rand as well, that's been dollar strength as well. You know, it's not it's not confined to South Africa. I think you'll find most emerging markets uh, currencies have been under pressure. So to to Paul, no, no real evidence. 
Uh, there's another question here from Peter Bodel. I told you, Peter and Paul. He says, if we allow, uh, he says, as a Naspers fan, would it be better to buy 10 cent on the NASDAQ than Naspers on the JSC, David? I had six or one, half a dozen of the other. I don't think it really makes a difference. I think there's quite a discount. You know, NASPES is still trading at quite a big discount to the underlying investments. And also with NASPES, you're getting another array of, of, of investments. I like Tencent. I like Alibaba. I still think that's the area to be. So um, if the money's trapped here, you know what I mean? If it's trapped here, uh, no problem with buying NASPES. If it's overseas, well, you know, you can buy 10 cents. But I don't think there's a definitive answer to that. They both, at, at the end, they both the same thing. I uh, hope Bob van Dijk does something, though. And I think that's why we're buying NASPES, is that the hope that uh, there'll be other areas, particularly in this kind of market, that do open up. And you know, you know me, I'm a massive, massive tech fan. I still think that there's so much going to happen in the next five years. So um, I remain committed to that, you know, to that area and, and certainly to things like mouse and process. Ten cents around 400 Hong Kong dollars. Uh, year to date, it's been a very volatile, but still up at a, at a pretty good uh, rating. If we take NASPAS against it, I hope it's still called NPN, David. Yep, there it is. Um, you can see that uh, it's in fact outperformed. Mm. Naspers has outperformed uh, so far this year, and that's probably because of the buyback um, by about 18 percent or so. Sorry, uh, the rand as well. I think we forget to uh, understand that you know that the rand at the beginning of January was 14ish. You know, now we're closer to 19. So in that NASPERS price has been a massive um, RAND devaluation as well. So anybody who is even, uh, you know, who's been exposed to offshore markets in RAND terms has really scored. I know you're going to be talking to, to Magda, but, I mean, if you talk to her about those, uh, you know, some of the funds that she has, uh, they've been massive outperformance as well, largely driven by, by some of the gains that we've seen in tech shares and also by, by weakness in the RAND. Mm, indeed. There's, I'm very glad that Rob Remus has asked this question. He says, how does Discovery's 25% ownership of Pingan Health affect its valuation? Well, I got all excited about this last week uh, in, in this program, as you remember, uh, David, because Pingan Health... Uh, which I didn't know uh, had was listed. Indeed, there is a ping on healthcare listed. So I scuttled off to Discovery and said, if you own 25% of this company, as you can see there, it has a market cap of 114 billion. If you work this out on the Hong Kong market cap, converted into rands, suddenly you've got a 25% share of this company, which is worth the same as Discovery's total listing on the JSC. And I was all excited and ready to tell everybody that Discovery has to be almost like another NASPERS. Unfortunately, this company's got nothing to do with Ping on Health, believe it or not, uh, which in which Discovery has its 25% shareholding. I checked it with the company. They explained to me that Ping on is, is quite a complex organization and that this is something called Good Doctor. And as you can see here on the Wall Street Journal, it's called Ping on Good Doctor's AI system. Good doctor, ping on good doctor, and so on. Uh, it's got nothing to do with ping on health, which is 25% owned by Discovery. So although ping on health in China is a valuable business, uh, it is not listed, uh, as we uh, initially suspected, and it got nothing to do with another company, number 1833, listed in Hong Kong called ping on healthcare. Rob, thanks for asking that question. It gives us the opportunity. 
Have we got Michael with us now? I, I would hope so. Can you hear me? At last. Hi, Michael. Uh, as the former chief executive of FNB, you must be watching what's going on in the markets uh, nowadays after COVID-19 and thinking, my goodness, those investments that you made back in those years have really come home for the bank. Um, you, you know, Alec, now is a very, very good time just for humility. Um, I, I've seen so many people become experts on things like epidemiology, which is a word as an Afrikaans speaker, I struggle to pronounce. And everybody thinks there should be a lockdown, there shouldn't be a lockdown, they should have done these investments and so on. I am as confounded as everyone else. I am particularly perplexed by how well some of the overseas markets are performing when the real economic conditions are so incredibly bad. Um, I, I know that's because of money printing, and I, I can kind of explain it in retrospect. But I think these are some of the strangest possible times that we find ourselves in. And things like negative interest rates, massive printing of money and so on, I just think it's confounding. And um, I, you know, one needs to be agile and flexible, but an adequate dose of humility when we're looking at what's happening in markets. Now, your company, Montegray, is a investor in a number of other companies. Uh, I think last time, uh, when, last time I, I looked into it, you, it's more than two dozen investments that you've got. So you must have a, a pretty good understanding of the way things are happening or performing within the South African environment. Uh, yes, I've got about 25 little investments. These are all startups, and they are all um, technology-focused. Or, or there's something about their business model that is enabled by technology. And I'm fairly fortunate that most of them have done well in these tough times, and in some cases, um, progress that they struggled to make for many, many years before has been accelerated by this. To just give you one example, there's a company called Snaplify that offers all the textbooks that schools use in an online or electronic version. They've now made it available for free to all schools in South Africa for the rest of the year. And the rapid adoption of online education is something that they struggle to get going and suddenly the crisis drives us into the future. So generally, the investments have done very well. Rain, for example, as a data provider, has seen massive, massive demand. But then, too, I am a wine producer, live on a wine farm, my, my wife and I. And um, as you know, there are zero wine sales, and so is the accommodation on the farm. And there we actually have a lot of laborers that we are trying to keep employed. So we are equally affected by, by the real world. Now, the big challenge, I think, for all of us is to just survive for the next 18 months because this thing is going to last longer than people want it to be. I saw a quote that is going around, I think it's on Twitter, Michael, that uh, is from Jack Ma, who says exactly that. This is not a time for dreams. This is not a time for ideals. This is a time for survival. Do you agree? Particularly if you're a startup, it's absolutely crucial that you need to get to a cash flow positive situation, which means cutting down the burn or increasing your revenues or doing whatever you need to do. Um, it's going to be a very tough time. Um, again, tough humility. I don't know when we're going to solve this crisis, but it seems like a vaccine could be 12 to 18 months off. And even if we find a vaccine now, it's not as if the economy is just going to restart by itself. So clearly, um, you need to prepare for the long run and prepare to survive, and that means cash flow, a break even. It's going to be much tougher to get funding. You know, funders are, are you know, risk averse and holding back on all of that. I suppose the only bottom line is that at the end of this, at the end of, let's say, 12 or 18 months, 
those companies that do survive will be stronger. If it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Some of your competitors will no longer be there. But for now, it's not about maximizing profits. It's about mere economic survival. What sectors of the economy are unlikely to survive, unlikely to make it through this crisis? Well, clearly there were some companies and some sectors that were marginal to start off with. Um, so let's say printed daily newspapers. That's been an industry that's been in decline for a long time. We've seen some magazines fail. Um, we've seen retailers, physical retailers fail. SAA has long been a zombie airline. Things like cinemas will suffer because people won't want to get together in large groups. Same with some restaurants, some bars. Commercial office space will suffer as people are starting to work from home. And sadly, some wine farms like our own are also under pressure. So, so really, it's the marginal businesses where there was a long-term negative trend. It's also those that aren't well-capitalized, that don't have ammo in reserve. Um, and then, of course, anything that accompanies this major shift from the physical world to the online world. Um, it, it's just accelerating. It's linked to online shopping or online education or online broking or online retail or working from home. Those businesses are going to grow rapidly, but it's going to be at the expense of old-era businesses. So what happens if you are one of the unfortunates who's working in one of these imploding industries or, or businesses? What do you do? Well, the best advice in business is always go back to first principles. Why are you in business? Um, who are you serving? What is the exact product that you're providing? What price should you be doing it at? And then to make the hard decisions around those first principles. You know, there may have been things that you knew you had to do, but they were just too tough to do before. Right now, you don't have that flexibility. Make the hard decisions. Often that would mean cutting costs. It could mean turning fixed costs into variable costs. As for pricing, generally you need to review it. And generally, I think it should be lower in this environment because it's stuff out there. And if all those things don't work, you should consider changing the business model, pivoting. A basic example of a pivot would be a restaurant that is now going into food delivery. Um, I've got one startup that you know, delivers premium wine online in South Africa, Porty Port it's called, but they can't deliver here. So they opened up a business in the UK using the software that they have now. So um, there are some growth opportunities, but you have to fundamentally reassess the business you're in. Sometimes you can pivot that business into a new direction. And there are other cases as well where you just need to call it a day and move on to something new. It's so interesting because I guess it's, it's hard once you, if you're part of the status quo, to see the reality. Um, one, it's not difficult to understand the advice. Warren Buffett over the weekend at the Berkshire Hathaway AGM was saying a lot of similar things to what you're saying now. But it's that jolt that one needs to, to understand reality. How, how do you do that if, if you've got a – let's just say you had a – publishing business, you had a print publishing business, how would you explain to people there to, that the world has changed? You know, there's this famous line, and it's been attributed to so many people, uh, that says, don't waste a good crisis. Um, it really just means that you've got to be um, authentic with the truth. You know, face the brutal reality of your business and your life. I think that's the most difficult thing, is we are all optimists and you're hoping for the better. This is not as much a time as it is for hope as it is one for facing the brutal facts. And actually, once you face those facts, 
then it becomes a whole lot easier to make the right type of decisions um, armed by the facts uh, that you need to do. So uh, I'm, I'm not saying it's easy. Sometimes these things are incredibly hard, but it's a little bit like, you know, uh, becoming more fit. You know, once you apply the discipline and you get into the routine of doing it, um, things are a lot better. I feel desperately sorry for people who are not in a position to do so, people who have jobs and can't even get to their jobs. Um, I do think that in three to six months' time, we'll look back at this period and look at a whole lot of decisions that overall as a society were suboptimal, whether some of those businesses shouldn't have started operating yet. So, so I, I'm, I'm not saying that it's easy for, for, for nearly anyone, but even there, there are options. This is, for example, a good time to educate yourself with new skills. There are many skills one can require online, acquire online for no cost. Many of these resources have been made available at no cost. So even there is an option to make some good out of this terrible scenario that we're currently experiencing. Larry Hobson asks you, he says, with your involvement in online, do you have a view on how far we are from using satellite or other technology in school education in South Africa, Michael? You know, it's interesting. I have three young daughters who happen to be in three different schools, and I can see how the schools have adopted technology differently. Um, what, you know, my daughter even, you know, my one daughter had to write exams or is regularly writing exams. Others are doing um, uh, quizzes. Um, some can see the rest of the classroom. I, I think the medium is a little bit less important here, whether this is satellite or 5G or 4G or, I don't know, fiber or dial-up modem. Um, that's just the connectivity layer. What is more important is content. Is there good educational content available out there? And there actually is. And as I made the point earlier, a lot of it is available for free. So the role of the educator is the most important one. And that will change from somebody who is a topic expert to somebody who can actually stimulate curiosity and can then help somebody through all the content that is available online for free. Now, these are the changes that would have taken 30 years before, but now suddenly many educators that, that, that would have struggled with this or, or, or would have been against it in principle are coming to terms with the fact that there is a whole wide world out there of, of online education. So I'm, I'm experiencing in my own life rapid growth, and I'm seeing it through, as I said, the company Snaplify that has made um, all the educational textbooks available for free for this year, that there is such rapid adoption. Uh, and, and that's a positive bit out of this, is human inventiveness and human ingenuity has not gone away. We will adapt to these new circumstances, however tough they are. Final question for you, Michael, is where do the opportunities lie? Right. Um, we speak about the fourth industrial revolution um, as if it is something very, very far away. And yet there are so many parts of this industrial revolution that we can grasp already today. Um, it's often said that um, we as humankind don't struggle so much at um, believing a new idea or a new concept. It's letting go of the old that, that gives us the most struggle. So I, I would say the opportunities lie actually in letting go of old ways of doing it, old type of business practices, and just looking what would be possible. And one little mind trick um, that, that, that I'd like to impart is don't think of what you think will be obvious next year or in three or five years. Think of what will be obvious in the business world or the economy in 10 or 15 years' time. And if it's obvious that it's going to happen in 15 years' time, start working on it now. You may have a small business, 
but it will grow very fast um, if you're on the right macro trend. Sure. That's very similar. I was reading through Daniel X's um, uh, quarterly report back to shareholders of Spotify, and he said that there's a 20-year trend from linear to on-demand consumption, and obviously they're in the, in the podcasting and the music game. But if you look across the world, he's taken that view, a 20-year view, and of course it's, it's happening a lot more quickly. While we're waiting for Magda, who will be joining us in a little while, Gigi, there are a couple of questions here for you which I'd very much like you to apply your mind to. Uh, the first one here is, what is your view on the e-commerce sector vis-a-vis the informal sector? It comes from Diana Coates. So, I was quite interesting listening to Michael because I think there's a lot of parallels to what he says to the informal or the township economy. So, I believe what's going to happen is, well, the starting point is, I guess, that uh, behaviours that have been established over this time period will not suddenly uh, suddenly change back to the previous. So, whatever shopper behaviours, consumer behaviours, whatever will happen over this uh, time and, and over the next six months, uh, will continue. So we have to look at those and say, well, what are those going to be? I believe that instead of online and virtual um, marketplaces that we'll have in the kind of uh, Western um, or more formal world, the um, reality is it's going to be about local and neighborhoods. So, for instance, if I was investing in malls, I would invest in uh, what I call strip malls closer to people um, in the neighborhood because I believe that that's going to, to grow. I think that... Um, it's not going to be so much internet shopping as WhatsApp and Facebook. So as an example, I was sent um, an order an, uh, an order form from a Chisanyama in Soweto that has placed their menu on Facebook, and um, you can WhatsApp them your order with the PIN number, and they will um, deliver to you. So I think, you know, if we look at, at um, online, um, WhatsApp, Facebook are going to be platforms that people are going to utilize more and more. And, um, and people are, are mistrusting of, of internet, of, of websites. So, but they trust WhatsApp, they trust uh, Facebook. Um, so, because they're relationship-based, I guess, um, and, and group-based uh, elements. So, I think that there's going to certainly be a growth of this. I think this is the opportunity. I wrote an article about it on LinkedIn. It's an opportunity for cashless payments because I think that. We've done very little. Everything's kind of look-alike, and, and it's all been about money transfer. I think the opportunity is going to be big for being able to, to go cashless, to, to utilize more innovative things than kind of e-wallets and money transfer. Uh, so, so the opportunity really is now. A lot of the traders that we're talking to are saying, well, I don't want to handle cash because cash is actually a risk in terms of uh, corona infection. So... So not because it's easier, but because it's actually dangerous. Fascinating. Uh, moving across, even in the informal economy, as, as uh, you're saying, these uh, trends are accelerating. David, your thoughts on what Michael Jordan had to say? He certainly uh, put the mockers on, uh, on the markets, in his view, anyway. And so- I can understand why markets are where they are, and I'm talking more in the global context of this, because these trends were already in place before we were locked down. So, you know, if you look at the big the big players, whether it's Facebook, whether it's um, Amazon, um, Apple, and so on, all that it's done is made them stronger and, and brought this trend uh, forward. And I think it's going to contend. And, you know, we've spoken before on this, uh, in, in the webcast about healthcare and health products. 
and uh, you know big developments there. Those still those are still going to be um, trends that are going to take place. Alec, I picked up another one. There's a very good article in the FT over the weekend by Sachin Andela, who's the CEO of um, Microsoft. You know, of, of Microsoft, mm. who mm. mentioned that there were two point at one stage they reached two point seven billion minutes. Uh, meeting minutes on Teams, uh, which is their their program. Before the the record was 900 million. So I think these just play into this uh, you know the ongoing benefit of um, you know of, of tech of technology. But I want to end on one point, or, or just end this the, the question is the one thing that we're ignoring, and and you know Michael spoke about education, is that there's vast differences in the population. There's a huge group of people who do not have access to broadband or to this kind of technology. Uh, and that's the poorer people. And this is a global thing as well. By closing down schools and going this way, we're actually ignoring the education of a vast amount of people who are going to continue to fall behind uh, the rich. So I think when we go into these areas, when we, we start to develop on a uh, you know, technological path, You've got to, you know, you've got to include uh, those people who can't afford it or haven't got access to it as well. So it, it's a very, very important aspect or element of the so-called move for this path forward. I've got Microsoft on the screen. Sorry, Gigi, I've got Microsoft on the screen, David, and uh, I, I know that around mid-March, my pal Alan, not Craig. Uh, who writes for us from time to time and who actually has done a huge amount in getting Wi-Fi to informal communities. He said because of Teams, because of Microsoft Teams, which you mentioned, he would be buying the shares. And my goodness, they've gone from around $140, as you can see there, to 175 So that was quite a good call. Apologies, Gigi. Sure. I just wanted to add, I think that in terms of what David was saying, the low cost, low data or data-free um, platforms, I think, are going to be very successful. There's a hash data-free uh, platform, mm -hmm. a South African one, uh, with a, a product called Moya Messenger, as an example, which is basically you can uh, free apps and uh, free free messaging. I think that big people's issue is that data is still expensive and that most apps and most uh, online elements are very data hungry with high visual content or video or whatever it might be. I think there must be a huge opportunity. If you just look at that hash data free platform, there is going to be a need for that. And I think you'll see, you know, people like Township School able to utilize that kind of, of platform. In, in most households, You've only got one laptop. You don't have three laptops. So if you've got three kids there who have to be educated, even if they are remote, uh, you haven't got the equipment. You know, and I think it's absolutely imperative. Um, and I'm big on health in this respect as well. You know that that uh, this is the socialist side of me coming through. In that you know these areas uh, are, are are the areas that have to be addressed first. Number one, access to health, and 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 uh, you know good health and also access to this kind of technology. If we are going to uplift and, and address the, you know, the glaring differences that we have in this economy, and I suppose it works globally as well, you know, these are, these, these are areas that we have to focus on in a big way. Well, we do have a president who in the State of the Nation address last year said he wants, he's going to put a tablet in the hands of every school child. I guess there's no better time than to resuscitate that dream now. Louis Heron, another old friend, asks David, 
What is the sentiment now on active versus passive investment strategies? Well, I've, I've always been active. And I think while the downturn was uh, across the board, I think the upturn is going to be very much more focused. Uh, you can't just buy, you can't just buy a passive investment. You're going to have to be very careful where you put your money. And if you listen to Michael carefully, he identified it. You know, he identified the, the businesses, those that are not burning cash, those of, uh, uh, cutting down their expenses, converting their fixed assets into, sorry, their fixed expenses into variable expenses and so on. So you've got to be much more conscious of where the business is going and what its product is and, and what its balance sheet looks like. And, uh, therefore, you know, a lot more selective about where, uh, where you put your money. Um, GG. And, and mm-hmm. that, that's why I'm saying, you know, from a from an, an active point of view, do your homework and 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 do the reading. But you didn't answer it, Dave. <laughs> he wants to the know is the is the money swir- uh, going back to active because presumably yes. good fund managers yes. would be buying Sassel at twenty bucks. You know, um, yes, that is happening. So as institutions go into cash, <laughs> what's been driving the market up has been the private investor. There are much more retail investors coming in and looking for opportunities. So the trend is much more towards um, active. Yeah, uh, Passive, going cash, getting out of the market, taking protection. I think the retail investors are a lot more bold and you know, looking as to where we're going to be in a few years' time when we come out of this. Now, there's an interesting graph for you when you have a look at uh, Sassel's graph today. I, mentioned, I keep mentioning it because... Uh, so many of us uh, went, including in our portfolio, bought it in the 20s. And you can see there it's, it's had a, a big bounce from uh, where it was just after 12 o'clock today to, uh, since we've been talking here, to, it's got to 81 bucks from 76.50. There's a question here for you, Gigi. It comes from George Mayring, who's obviously in, in Port Elizabeth. He says, our painter in Walmart Township mentioned that the food parcels are collected in excess by some who then sell it to Somali spaza shops who break them up and then sell it into the warmer township again. Do you find this? I have heard many uh, stories of this. um, And, uh, I mean, there's obviously been a lot of stuff on social media claiming councillors and and politicians selling um, items. I have no reason to to doubt it. I have heard lots of stories about it. I can't, um, uh, uh, but I, I would just uh, I would say that the the Somali traders are traders first and foremost, and if they can get uh, cheap stock, they're going to buy it and resell it. It's quite. It's uh, well. I suppose it's it's one of those unintended consequences of trying to help people. David, there's a, there are quite a few questions here. Um, would you buy both ASML and the chip makers and semiconductors? Uh, and and no doubt, ASML is the uh, Netherlands company that makes the machinery that allows you to make the semiconductors. They're under a bit of pressure, as all markets are at the moment. They've run very hard. I, you know, I'm taking a view of, of this uh, so-called digital economy, which I think is just starting now. I think it's going to get a lot bigger than it is at the moment. And, and ASML is well-placed, and it's got progressive technology. I can't explain it in technical terms because I have to have it in front of me that it's selling now, the kind of machines that it's selling now. But it's, it's a very, very high-tech company. And Alec, 
you can associate. You remember Buffett went into Israel and he bought this high-tech business. Iskar. Uh, Iskar. Well, I always think of uh, ISCAR when I think of ASML. It's just one of those businesses which is just so way ahead of its comp- competition. And there is competition, of course, in South Korea and and other you know other places that do make this kind of machinery. So, but but uh, a su- superbly run business and pays dividend and and run by Duo Hollanders. You know, when you listen to them, they tell it how it is, and they just see good times ahead. So. Uh, very, very well placed for, for the expansion that we're going to see in the digital economy. So use, use the recent weakness uh, around 250 euros. You might have li- missed the 175, but that's what David's telling you. Huh? Magash Pele asks, how do you get exposure to Tencent? Is it via Naspers or pr- uh, Process? Actually, it's by, by both. But he, he says as a follow-up, can you explain the holding between Tencent, Naspers and, and Process? Do you want to give that a go, David? No. no. <laughs> I'm going to get all confused. <laughs> but um, process holds Tencent and, and Nasdaq holds process. So uh, I haven't got all the, all the formula and all the different uh, cross-holdings here. But effectively, if you do your work and if you set up a model, you will find gaps that emerge that make us, uh, you know, makes one cheaper than the other. But there certainly are gaps between uh, Tencent and Naspers, and then between Process and Naspers as well. Sorry, between Tencent and Process, and then Naspers and Process as well. But if you're an amateur uh, investor, you do know that there are experts like David Shapiro who are taking advantage of that arbitrage situation. So just buy and hold for the long term. I, I would suggest to you, Magash, my view, buy Naspers in South Africa. You live in South Africa. You get it at a, at a huge discount. All the way through, you're getting a big discount on Tencent. But let's go to Neil Boyce's question. And he says, guys, why are big, a big business so silent when it comes to crazy laws and draconian attitude? As Gigi will confirm, we have a crisis with regard to our informal sector and poor people. Government is still playing politics and big business is quiet. Gigi, thoughts? Uh, yeah, look, I mean, I think big business uh, has play, is playing a political game to a large extent. Uh, and, um, I, yeah, look, I, I think that we come from a government that believes in a welfare state, um, that it believes in a socialist economy. And so they would rather dish out uh, food parcels, even if the numbers don't make sense. I mean, if you just look at the numbers, as an example, we have uh, – We've got uh, um, about 15, 16 million odd households in South Africa, and uh, we're giving out like 100,000 uh, food parcels and karting and, and so on and so forth. So we're never going to fill the gap, but we do have a government that believes in, in, the, um, in, in a welfare state. And I think that, um, you know, no one wants to, to irritate the the uh, the government so there, there's a lot of political games going on and uh, and and I mean the immigrant story that I mentioned earlier is an example you know it's the elephant in the room it's it's uh, you know um, we have hungry people and and yet uh, politically we are all just saying now let's uh, let's let's give um, only South Africans so um, yeah, we don't have a we don't have a history of big business jumping up and and saying unpopular things. I don't think. 
Well, um, Magda has uh, joined us. Magda Wadzicha, who's the founder and chief executive of Signia. I've got to tell you guys, before we bring Magna into the conversation, uh, Magnus Haystick emailed me something which kind of blew my mind a little bit. He said that Magda's company, Signia, is the biggest single shareholder in the Oxford Scientific Innovation Fund. Now, if you've been following Biz News, we had an interview with Adrian Hill, Professor Adrian Hill, a couple of weeks ago that uh, our colleague in London, Linda van Tilburg, did, where he said, no way, of course we're going to win this vaccine race. We're going to get a vaccine for COVID-19. And on Friday, AstraZeneca said they're going to start making this vaccine that Oxford University is, is producing, uh, Adrian Hill and co. Signia is the biggest single shareholder in the company that owns all of the rights, lifelong for all patents and inventions from Oxford University. Magnet kind of blew me away. First of all, how did you find out about the investment opportunity? And secondly, where's the flaw in my argument here? Well, there, there isn't, but, but let me take you through the layers of it. So um, Oxford University in 2015 struck a deal with not being a, you know, being a academic institution and not being very good at commercializing the IP that comes out of Oxford. It struck a deal with a selection of top brand name asset managers um, in the UK, uh, but it includes, uh, you know, the people such as Goldman Sachs and Sequoias. And they established a company called Oxford Sciences Innovation, which basically owns or at least the right to commercialize all the IP which comes out of Oxford University. And it's an in perpetuity deal and an exclusive one at that. So basically, you know, the way it works normally is if you have an academic or academic team, they come up with some innovation or some great idea. They register a patent. Um, what happens to that patent is that Oxford University owns 50% of the rights to the patent and the academic staff owns 50%. So in this transaction, OSI then um, takes a look at the patent, and if it deems it to be um, worthy of commercialization and turning into a company, um, it then sets up a company, and right at inception, before any money is actually transferred from OSI into that company, OSI owns 25% of the shares in that company, Oxford University 25, and the academic staff retains 50% stake. And then, of course, the very next thing that happens is OSI needs to seed that company with capital so that it can hire a management team and start uh, working on developing a product or a service. Um, and, of course, at that stage, the only people injecting capital is OSI. And OSI, when it started in 2015, um, had £600 million on its balance sheet. Um, so OSI deploys capital. The moment it deploys capital into that spin-out company, um, it effectively, you know, the percentage ownership of that spin-out changes because Oxford University doesn't typically put in any more capital and obviously neither does academic staff. So, you know, by the time these companies are sizable or sufficiently sizable, you know, OSI tends to own about 50% of each one of these spin-outs. Um, and, of course, as they grow... Um, you know, other validating capital comes along, other investors come along as those, cap as those companies raise capital. And since 2015, 
Oxford and OSI have spun out 80 companies. They spin out around 10 companies a year. Um, one of those companies is Basitech, which is um, the company working on the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, and because they, in fact, have been working on the MERS vaccine, um, they had, you know, heck of a head start on everybody else. Um, so ownership of OSI shares was a bit of a closed club uh, in the sense that the shares never traded. But uh, last year in the UK, there were few managers, asset managers, who were under stress. Uh, because of outflows, and um, I heard you earlier talking about passive, so some of it had to do with movement of money away from active asset management to passive management, and they became forced sellers of the OSI shares, or at least any shares that they had. Um, I have been aware of OSI since 2015. One of our non-executive directors, big shareholder Insignia, Andrew Crawford Brand um, was one of the founding shareholders in OSI, but you know, knowing about it and owning the shares are two different things. Um, so when I became aware of the distressed asset managers, we approached them um, uh, proactively and negotiated, a, you know, three different transactions and acquired the stakes in in OSI, which means that uh, on behalf of of uh, clients, we now own 16% of OSI, which makes us the largest shareholder. We have a board seat at OSI as well. That's an extraordinary story, Magda. So Andre Crawford Brunt was a shareholder, and he's well known in South Africa for his times at, at Deutsche, and of course he's, he's, done, he's been very successful in the UK as well, and a, a big shareholders of yours. So he, he spotted Oxford Scientific Innovation Fund, or OSI as you call it. He made an investment obviously spoke to you about it and then the asset managers who through was it through COVID-19 that they were becoming stressed put their shares on the market um, and you bought them and like one of them was Woodford Neil Woodford ah yes so a little bit of a John Bickard of, of the UK you know very famous asset manager accumulated a lot of publicity and a lot of assets on the way up and on the way down and he was a big shareholder in our side um, so he was my first target um, you know, when, when he faced large outflows and I knew that he had a pocket of the shares, uh, we approached Woodford and bought his stake in OSI. And then there were a couple of others. David, I can see you just itching to ask Magda a question. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm on his side. I'm, I'm, I'm just asking where is this in her fourth revolution? Is this on her fourth uh, industrial revolution fund or is it uh, held in some of the ETFs? Or is this just a private holding that uh, they have? No, so it's held in a couple of appropriate unit trusts, such as the Fourth Industrial Revolution unit trust. But we also have an exclusive product called mm. Signia Oversight Fund. Um, obviously, the, the um, you know, access to these shares is quite uh, scarce. And so we've got a lot more commitments to the fund than we have shares available at the moment. Um, but, um, you know, we, we are hopeful we can negotiate a couple of more deals, ideally. You know, so, so it, is, it is a shareholding in some of our products, obviously the appropriate products, um, as well as being a standalone product where we offer investors access directly to, to our side shares. So if a private investor, somebody listening to this webinar, wants to invest, mm -hmm. they then apply to become an investor in your OSI fund? They will just invest in a Signia OSI fund. 
That's correct. And although it's an unlisted investment, what we've done for retail investors in particular is that Signia underwrites the liquidity. So um, you invest in the fund, but if you want to withdraw, uh, we will purchase the shares and, and give you your money back at the prevailing market value. What about this um, Professor Adrian Hill's vaccine and AstraZeneca's announcement on Friday that they're going to start producing it? Presumably, this will flow through to OSI at some point. At some point. So, so Oxford University, as opposed to you know, many of the American companies, is very adamant that they will never benefit financially as an institution from a global pandemic or a global disaster. So in terms of the deal between OSI and Oxford, there is one little carve-out which talks to global disasters. And so the deal is that, um, you know, Vasitech, which is the spin-out in which OSI has a 45% stake, is developing the vaccine. But what they've done is they've set up a, a separate company underneath Vasitech, which is also um, part owned by Oxford University directly so that the IP is protected. Um, and the idea is that they will develop the vaccine. They have already moved to human trials. I think, I think 6,000 people are now in human trials. Um, and, you know, they have, okay, according to the Vasitech founders, 80% probability of having a successful vaccine by September. According to Sir John Bell, who is, you know, the leading dean of medicine at Oxford, he, he puts the odds at 50-50. Um, but still, you know, and puts, he puts the odds, you know, much higher than on, on any other uh, vaccine in development. So what will happen is that that vaccine will be manufactured and sold at cost until a year after World Health Organization has de declared the COVID-19 no longer to be a pandemic, at which stage, you know, it will become a for-profit endeavor. Um, so, you know, in the meantime, it will be done at cost, if, obviously, if it is successful. Wow. But that's just one of the of 80 different companies um, that OSI owns stakes in. Now, um, <laughs> Rulof Wurter, who's another famous South African, who's the, uh, I think, the lead. My best uh, friend from university days. Yeah. Oh, okay. So Magnus tells, tells us that you guys know each other well. Uh, from the Sequoia Fund. David obviously knows uh, of, or, or do you know Rudolf, Dave? I, I know his father. That's about the closest I get. And I know that Puck Porter was his grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> grandpa. Grandpa, just like you. Yeah. But, but Magda, um, did, he, did he also encourage you uh, to invest in, in this OSI fund? So I actually saw Rudolf uh, in... Um San Francisco in September, I went to see him. Um, but he, he truly was my best friend at university. Um, and then he left, as you know, he left South Africa. He became part of the PayPal mafia and uh, subsequently joined Sequoia uh, Capital and now heads up Sequoia Capital in the U.S. Um, so, in, in fact, Sequoia's holding in OSI is interesting because they hold the shares in OSI not in the funds that they run on behalf of the client, but they hold it in the fund, in the partners fund. So it's the fund that benefits the partners of Sequoia. Not dissimilar to Willis Towers Watson globally. They also have a stake in OSI. They also hold that stake in the partners fund. 
rather than in, in the clients' portfolios. And, you know, part of the reason is such scarcity of those shares. You know, it's been so difficult to get access to those shares that when you do get a pocket of shares, probably selfishly, you, you hold it. <laughs> wow. You know, what, what an amazing you know, story, Magda. It really is. Dave, you got a last question for Magda before we let her go? Yeah, I just want to look where else she's, uh, she sees benefit. I know uh, in the health side, um, you know, what areas, what other areas she's looking at. Uh, just reading such an Adela, he sees um, telemedicine as, uh, as, 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 as another big area. In other words, where you can consult over technology. So I just see it as a, as a huge growth area and something that's going to be very positive down the line. But I'm just very interested in, in where else Magna is focusing her attentions. For her private fund, not for us. We just want to know where her private money is going. <laughs> well, I think when we invested in in May last year, you know, who could have envisaged COVID-19? You know, I'm not going to for a second pretend. Uh, but, you know, I'm looking at all the big drivers of kind of impact investing. So if I think of the world going forward, you know, I think that active asset management will have a really tough time. It is having a tough time. You know, overseas, money is moving to passive. Investors are looking for cheap ways of accessing the market, the kind of, you know, listed markets. And whether that takes the form of, you know, passive investing, beta investing, active investing, it doesn't matter. It will all be about low-cost access to market returns. On the other side of the spectrum, you have alternative investments. And there, I think, you know, the big focus of most investors is impact investing. So it's anything to do with climate change, anything to do with healthcare provision, affordable education, affordable housing. Um, you know, my and, and technology is the big enabler of being able to deliver that um, in an affordable, accessible manner. To, to the masses, you know, previously was was not possible. So we are looking, you know, I am hugely excited about obviously OSI and within OSI the convergence of healthcare and technology. Um, you know, there are a lot of really exciting companies in that portfolio. You know, I know the COVID-19 vaccine is, is just kind of at the forefront of everyone's mind, but there are some, you know, amazing healthcare-type innovations within the OSI portfolio. So, so to me, healthcare will become fo a focus for investors, for government. And what's important about government focus is that government focus comes with grant funding. So, for instance, Besitec doesn't need to raise money from external investors. Um, it has received um, £29 million from UK government with support for more if they need it. So all of a sudden you've got kind of, you know, if, if you're an investor, you'll have access to non-dilutive sources of funding in that sphere. So climate change, healthcare, technology. Those are my kind of areas of focus. And the business we're setting up for Signia Offshore is an alternative investments business with, you know, debt at its core. Magda Wizicher, the founder and chief executive of Signia, thanks for joining us today and for giving us your, your insights into an incredible investment opportunity, Dave, that it just shows if you're in the right place at the right time and you've got the right friends like Rudolf Werther and Andre Crawford Brandt um, and you're smart, which we know Magda is, uh, you can really 
uh, share the love throughout the, the, uh, the South African society. Uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions. We have gone over our time today, but there, there's so many questions. I'd like to really just jump into them and perhaps quick answers from you, Dave. Where do you see the RAND going in the next few weeks? This is from Pierre Huerson. Oh, it's so difficult. You know, it's so difficult to call. And as I, as I mentioned on Thursday, uh, the RAND was 1803. It's, it's, it's close to 1860, 1870 now. It'll all depend uh, you know, besides the cash flows in and out of South African investments, and then it's also going to depend on where the global economy goes. I'm, I'm a great believer that we'll get back to 1516 uh, in the second half of the year when the global economy starts to uh, pick up a bit of momentum. Maybe, maybe not uh, that fast, but I, I, I still see, uh, I see us on that course. You know, as, 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 as we, as things start to improve, and as we start to get news of vaccines and other cures and uh, better treatments you know, for COVID-19. So it, it's hard to call, it's hard to be negative on the RAND at these kind of levels, you know, short of a, a further catastrophe. So what you're looking at there is going back to where the RAND, and I've got on the, on the, the chart now from yeah. the Wall Street Journal, um, so it would be where it traded pretty much up until February this year before it blew out. Uh, above 14, as you say, between 14 and 15, and you'd, you'd see that as a more normal range for the South African yep. Rand. Okay. I'm sure that Pierre would be happy to hear that. Uh, then there is one here from Mike Glattar. Can one offshore funds invest, can offshore funds invest in the Signia product? Mike, I think that, uh, uh Magda did answer that. Uh, Dave, uh, she said that they're going to be setting oh. up offshore as well. Sure, they've got ETFs here. There are a lot of ETFs. You know, I'm, I must say that I'm a big, uh, you know, where we can't get money offshore and where we're forced to stay at, particularly for Regulation 28 businesses or where people do not want, you know, want to keep the money here. There's, uh, one can go into, uh, the ETFs. You know, there is a fourth industrial revolution. There's, um, there, there, there other products. I think the S&P 500, there are a whole host of different ETFs that you can go into that's exchange traded funds, which are listed on the JSC that you can buy, uh, literally through an ordinary stockbroking account. Peter Salter says he missed our discussion on Sassel. Surely it will go up after lockdown. You know, it's a hard one. Cecil is such an emotional issue at the moment. Um, it, you, you're calling the oil price, which has, you know, which could come under further pressure, which is not really uh, picking up off these levels. You're calling the rand. You're calling the deal to sell uh, part of the, uh, um, you know, part of the Lake Charles product. There's so many unknowns about the, you know, about the company. For me, it's dangerous territory, not because I'm anti-Sassel, just that um, it's just one of those companies which at the moment is very, very difficult to call because there's so many moving parts. So you're taking a big risk by buying Sassel at, at these points simply because of, of those issues. The oil price, the RAND, uh, demand for chemicals, uh, the Lake Charles issue, you know, so many of those things that you have to put together. And, and you know, if you read their statement that came out last week, uh, it did highlight the issues that, they, that, that, that they're facing. And they're going in and cutting their salaries, cutting staff salaries, cutting management salaries in an effort to conserve as much cash as they can. So when a company is in that kind of situation, it is a danger sign. You know, you have to recognize that. I've got the uh, Brent oil price up on 
the screen right now. And as you can see, it's now got to around $26. We had a really good interview with Justice van der Spey a couple of weeks ago, a oil trader based in London, uh, who was explaining why the WTI index went negative. It was really uh, certain traders who were caught on the wrong side of it, and they, they had to pay people to take the contracts away from them. Uh, but this is the one that we watch in South Africa, and as you can see, it did lift up a little bit in the past few days from around $22 to around $26. Uh, Vitsa Post says the fossil fuel companies are likely to tank and internal combustion engines too. I doubt any new refineries will ever be built again. Hmm. Ever is a long time, uh, Vitsa, but uh, we respect your view. Uh, then we did ask, uh, or Dion did ask that question to Michael. I want you to apply your mind to it, Dave, if you would. Uh, if there was one bank that you could be in what which one would it be and if there was the last banking stock that you'd recommend and why oh you know I, I i've always regarded the banks with great respect i think they've always run very very close to each other they've always been well run and to identify one uh you'd have to ask an extremely good bank analyst to pick out one that stands uh above everyone else you know, from my point of view, I've always been in both First Rand and Standard Bank, and I think that's just historical. But um, which one I wouldn't be in, I don't know. You know, Capitec has done incredibly well. Um, probably very, very vulnerable, although, um, you know, very vulnerable in this kind of climate where smaller and medium-sized businesses are feeling a lot more pressure than the, than the top end. But isn't this an interesting graph? Look at it on your on your uh, screen now, David. I've taken First Rand and Capitec, and one always assumes that Capitec is the stock that is going to it's growing faster, it's going to outperform, and actually they are dead in line from the beginning of this year. They they are very very closely correlated now. Whereas of course, if you go back five years or so it would have been less correlated. And you can look at that there. You can see how Capitec has outperformed first rand quite significantly on a five-year basis. So maybe Capitec is becoming a big bank and it's stock trading like a big bank. I, it's, it's so hard to, you know, it's so hard to, to work your way through where we are at the moment. And I think that, uh, Michael said, you know, this, this is, uh, the situation has humbled us all, uh, and has made us rethink of, of where we are. Um, I think a lot of banks at, at the moment, if you think about banks, uh, they're under quite a bit of pressure. Um, they're going to have to put huge amounts aside to cover write-offs, bad debts, um, you're not going to see an increase in trading activity at the moment. So I think they're all going to feel the pressure and, and again, have to withhold dividends in order to conserve cash, which has been a recommendation from the regulators. So I think most banks, you know, uh, are going to find themselves in very tough conditions now. And that would include even finance companies, um, um, you know, that, that, that are listed on the market, which I would assume includes our own business, Satsman, and that it's a, it's a very, very difficult time. Which one comes out? It, it, it's, I think they all come out. I don't think anybody's vulnerable. I do not think any of our banks are vulnerable. They've been incredibly well run and very well regulated and very well capitalized. But you can't ignore the kind of economy that we're in at the moment. So, you know, just be cautious on, uh, you know, on the segment. If you're looking for growth and if you're looking for shares to go, if you're looking for survival, they're okay. 
John, I'm going to be a little more specific than David. He's hedging his bets there. And I would say uh, get out of APSA. Uh, that would be my worst bank to be invested in. Uh, as you can see here, it's the golden line on the uh, on the chart. Capitec outperformed first rand uh, in the middle there with the black line and then APSA out underperformed. And I'll tell you one of the reasons, one of the main reasons for this. I had a chat last night with Brian Beeler who's the MD and part owner of Hazemark, which is one of the big estate agencies. He reckons uh, they have been doing a few deals during lockdown and the prices of houses that are moved, changing hands are dropping dramatically. He reckons that house prices, when we come out of lockdown, when estate agents can start trading again, are going to be anywhere between 10 at the lower end and 20% lower than the already depressed prices they were at before we went into lockdown. Now, just extrapolate that. Which is the bank that has got the most expo uh, um, exposure to mortgages? APSA by a country mile. So a consequence of that would be, for me, I would say probably Capitec or well, probably First Rand at these levels because Capitec is now going to be operating pretty much like First Rand and, and we know uh, the incredible job that Michael uh, and his colleagues, Michael Yordan and his colleagues, did it first round in positioning them technology-wise for the new world. Uh, and so they will benefit from the changes. But on the other hand, the one that has to be most vulnerable must be APSA. Uh, David, we've, uh, I really want to finish off these questions because you've got to go. Uh, but what is your most contrarian investment idea currently not held by your peers in the industry? <laughs> I, the fact that I'm, that I'm bullish probably, <laughs> that I continue to be an investor. And uh, um, I, I think from from a contrarian, okay, I'll give you my contrarian bit. And I actually mentioned that this morning. We're very negative on, we're very negative on air travel. We're exceptionally negative on uh, the whole industry. Buffett sold out of his airlines. Uh, I've been a long follower of Airbus. And it's a very solid company with about, 10 years of, of orders. The problem is it's under a lot of cash flow issues at the moment and therefore has been sold down. But um, it's, you know, it's when things change and they will change, I think they're going to, you're going to find them incredibly uh, cheap or dear at, at this kind of price. So that's my contrarian, but I'm saying at these kind of levels, at 50, it's at, uh, what's that, 54 euro a share, you're actually buying an option. You know, there's very little downside there. I think you're buying an option for the uh, for the upside. So um, don't don't expect any returns in the next few months. Um, but I think after that, when things normalise, you know, this thing can back, get back to where it was in the 130, 140 area, and that. So that's my contrarian uh, uh, choice at the moment. But uh, just be patient, and you know, don't look for any immediate returns. Well, there you can see it, $136, uh, euros rather, before COVID-19 uh, started cracking us. Uh, the mid-February, 138 euros. Uh, current price, one of 54 euros. And I suppose on top of that, David, with all the money that's being thrown at the problem by central banks, the assets have to appreciate in relative terms or, or, or versus the uh, the the money that you're talking about. Okay, two last questions. Uh, Investec Bank, what about that one? That's from Janet. Yeah, I think like the other banks that we've been discussing, and Alec, that was a very good point you made. 
you know, I really, I think uh, exactly that, you know, APSA's exposure to to retail mortgages are very big, you know, big issue and well thought and, you know, well presented. I, you know, Investec worries me. It worries me in, in, in a sense of, well, what does it do? You know, where is it going to position itself in a, in a situation now that it's lost the asset management side? Where does it make money? You know, what's special? Um, you know, what special um, speciality has it had got that it's going to outperform the the other banks? So um, I think its golden days were in the 90s. I've got a lot of respect for Stephen Kossoff and the management, etc. But I'm still battling to know where um, it's going to make its money, uh, you know, going forward in this kind of economy. Certainly not in the UK. Uh, it's going to have troubles here as well, you know. Uh, you have to understand the background of Investec and how it, it came to be where it is and the clientele that it built up, you know, and that's what's troubling me. It's almost like Liberty, you know, Liberty hold, Liberty Life, who made its name in the 70s and 80s with uh, a very specialized area of the market. I think Investec is in a similar situation. So I'm indifferent on the company, and that's no reflection of management or, or any, you know, just it just doesn't excite me. Wow, you have a look at this long-term graph going back to 1996, and you can see wow. there that uh, we're at share prices today that we were at 12 years ago, uh, and in the run-up even even 14 years ago, uh, under, thir- under 40 rand a share. And and yet it's such a good business, David. You, as a client of Investec uh-huh. Bank, I I don't know. Um, I, I think it, Discovery is a fantastic business and they're probably going to be chewing away at, at Investec's client base. But unless there's a, a culture change at Investec, you know, it's going to be very hard to shift those clients uh, across anywhere. And yet, look at the share price. And they're big in London. They're, they're, a, they're a big operation there and very successful there. Who knows? But I guess that's uh, the final question here is, Again, from Vitsa Post, who, who says uh, a big risk is the car finance market, market, big losses coming, especially with those balloon payments. And I guess there, when you talk about first rand, you've got to look at West Bank. Of course, ABSA, you look at Bankfin, or I think it's still around, is it Bankfin? Or it's now called ABSA, whatever, car finance. So there, there are lots of questions uh, that exist there, and excluding both of those areas, I've changed my mind, by the way, on the best bank that I'd go with, uh, is uh, Capitec haven't got an exposure to home loans or an exposure to uh, car finance. So maybe that's the one to be looking at. Dave, we've indulged you for longer than usual today. Apologies for, uh, for that and for keeping you here, but it was a, a particularly good um, episode of our um, webinar come uh, or our, our podcast come webinar. Thanks for sharing as you always do your wisdom so freely and so so um, generously with us. And we look forward to being back again, same place next week. And hopefully I'll get my, my webcam working and you can at least see that I'm not here in my pajamas. <laughs>